This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Good afternoon. My name is Ian Menkini, and I am Suffolk University Law School's Director of Electronic Marketing and Enrollment Management. I'm really lucky today to be joined on the podcast by Suffolk University Distinguished Scholar-in-Residence, author, Boston Globe columnist, and fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, James Carroll. Mr. Carroll, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ian. Great to be here. So we're going to be discussing your newest book, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. But before we do, I wanted to ask if you could introduce your role at Suffolk as Distinguished Scholar-in-Residence. Well, I wouldn't claim too much for that word distinguished, but I'm a scholar-in-residence at Suffolk, have been for several years now, and it involves two things. One, Suffolk's tremendous support for my work. I work in my office most days here. I wrote Jerusalem, Jerusalem while I was scholar-in-residence at Suffolk. And I'm available to be at the service of professors and students at Suffolk, a function that mainly has me involved with the college. So typically, I several times a month, maybe once or twice a week even, I'm a guest in classrooms, I'm on panel discussions. My work has crossed genres and disciplines. I'm a novelist, I've published 10 novels, so I feel at home in literature classes and writing classes. I'm also an historian, I've published five works of history. So I readily join the conversation in history classes, for example. I'll be this semester part of a discussion about politics. I'll be part of a class on Dante. I will be presenting on Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine. My training actually is in Catholic theology, such as it is, my training I mean. So you can see I'm a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, and it's a good fit. Suffolk students are lively, interested, engaged. The faculty are wonderfully inventive, creative people. I love being in Suffolk. So I'd like to transition to your book now, if I could. Mm -hmm. And in reading it, what I was particularly struck by was the vastness of the story and really beginning from the beginning of time to the present day. And I was wondering if you could talk about why it was necessary to tell the Jerusalem story, both of the real Jerusalem and the imagined Jerusalem, in such an expansive, vast way. Well, you know, since 9-11, one of the great public questions, to everybody's surprise, I think, is the relationship between religion and violence. 9-11 itself was an incident of religious violence. Extremist Muslims who targeted the World Trade Center and the Pentagon as an act of radical devotion. They invoked the name of God in their acts of terror, which put the question of religion and violence square on the public agenda. That's the extremist Islamic experience. A moment's thought, of course, tells us that other religious movements have inspired violence too. Christian religious violence is a deep part of Western history. As a Christian, I'm a Catholic, I felt it was my obligation to begin to explore my own tradition's relationship to violence, which already had taken me into a study of anti-Semitism, which is a profound source of Christian violence against Jewish people. And then I expanded the subject more broadly. And to focus this really large and problematic question, not nearly as simple as you might think, I found it necessary to center, and of course the most obvious place to do that is Jerusalem, not just because Jerusalem is today the locus of a flashpoint of violence between Israelis and Palestinians, which has a religious aspect to it. 
obviously Jewish, Muslim, and Christian elements to it, uh, but also because Jerusalem itself is one of the places on the earth where human beings came in prehistoric times to the practice of sacrifice. And Jerusalem, Jerusalem begins in prehistory with the study of sacrifice. What is sacrifice? Sacrifice is the act of making something holy by killing it. A living thing, whether plants, animals, or in most cultures at some point in history, human beings. And that was the ground of the city of Jerusalem, the temple, which was the organizing institution of Jewish religion in biblical times, was a place of sacrifice. Christianity comes out of Judaism and understands itself as built around the idea of sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So it was a natural place for me to turn. And the book, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, traces the story of religion and violence from biblical times through the early Christian era up through the coming of Islam. Muslims take the city of Jerusalem in the 7th century, not long after Muhammad died, through the Crusades, which are the European Christian attempt to retake the city of Jerusalem, and the spawning of basic ideas in European culture that were generated during the Crusades. Remember, the Crusades went on for almost 300 years, and those happened to be the exact same 300 years that Europe's idea of itself gelled. And one of the central ideas of Europe was the longing to reclaim Jerusalem. And since the real Jerusalem, they simply couldn't do it, all those crusades were failures, except for the first, which was briefly successful. Since European Christians could not reclaim the real literal city of Jerusalem, they invented and became at the mercy of an imagined Jerusalem, a holy city, but also a city of violence. And the idea took hold of the Christian imagination that somehow God wills violence to bring about the heavenly Jerusalem God is prepared to destroy the earth. An idea we see rendered very powerfully in the last book of the Christian Bible, the book of Revelation, also known tellingly as the book of the Apocalypse. And finally, Jerusalem, Jerusalem traces this history right to the present time. Apocalyptic notions of violence informed the American war on terror. Evangelical Christianity in explicit ways upholds a millennial apocalyptic vision that includes a very violent notion of God, but so do other forms of Christianity. So it's a bit of a sweep, as you suggest, prehistory to the present time, but the organizing center, the place to which we keep returning, is Jerusalem. And so you talk about, you alluded to, a Jerusalem fever, which is an interesting concept. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners about that. The idea of Jerusalem has lodged in the human imagination in various cultures in ways that ignite it. It's a metaphor, of course, but what I think is that there, there are certain ways in which this notion of God-willed violence centered in the holy city that may need to be destroyed in order to be redeemed ignites what I call Jerusalem fever. The idea that the achievement of heaven is somehow worth the destruction of earth. 
And that idea, located in Jerusalem, has led again and again and again to, especially Christians, but not only Christians, assaulting that city and the people in it. You saw this very explicitly during the Crusades, which were savage holy wars, attempts to retake Jerusalem that involved almost genocidal killings of people in the Middle East. And the Crusades ignited the European version of Jerusalem fever. Jews who were exiled from Jerusalem kept their connection to the city alive by their own version of the imagined Jerusalem, praying as Jews do next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem, Jerusalem always locating the Jewish idea of the future, the homeland, which is of course a profoundly important idea in understanding the pull of Zionism. The reason, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries, that Jewish people all over Europe, and not only in Europe, found the return to Palestine as a absolutely irresistible and compelling vision, which generated Zionism, ultimately the return of many Jews to the Jewish homeland from which they'd been driven, especially by Christians, culminating in the establishment of the State of Israel. Jerusalem fever, you could say, defines the argument today between Palestinians and Israelis. And of course the tragedy of this story is that when Jews return in number to the holy city, the holy Jewish city of Zion, there are already people living there, Palestinians, who have little or nothing to do with the European tradition of anti-Semitism that drove Jews into exile in the first place, but who nevertheless find themselves burdened by the return of many Jews to Jerusalem, to Israel, to Palestine, especially in the aftermath of World War II and the Holocaust. So my hope is that unpacking a history like this will enable people to understand that Israelis and Palestinians, while they're caught in a corner, are caught in a corner the walls of which they didn't create. One corner is anti-Semitism, the other corner is racist, colonial superiority of whites. And between those two European-created movements, Israelis and Palestinians are caught today. This period of trouble between Israel and Palestine has been deeply, tragically worrisome, heartbreaking, really. My hope is that by unpacking history like this, we can illuminate some of the darker forces that are below the surface so they can be dealt with and disposed of so that people can get to the point that everybody wants, in fact, which is peace and reconciliation, living together without violence. See, ultimately, the, the book becomes a, a story not only of the city of Jerusalem, but ultimately of human nature and the human capacity for violence. Am I correct in that? Yes, sense? it's true. Well, Jerusalem has been the center of this manifestation of the human condition, this tragic manifestation, which is Every human being is troubled by violence. We're afraid of it, we're threatened by it, and when we enact it, we can't do it without a troubled conscience unless we're somehow monstrous. So what's the solution to the problem of violence? And since prehistory, humans have answered that question by saying the solution to the problem of violence is more violence. 
So sacrifice itself is a form of violence which intends to channel off broader and more damaging violence. So we're threatened by violence, we attempt to mitigate it necessarily with more violence, and the theory of course always is that this will be the last violence we'll have to use. This will be the war to end all wars. This will be the last time that human beings actually have to clobber other human beings as a way to end this terrible habit of conflict. And of course, every time we do that, we find that we're at the mercy yet again of the cycle of violence. Well, something new has happened to raise the question of whether this can't change at last. And the new thing that's happened is that since 1945, between Auschwitz and Hiroshima, human beings have given themselves the ability to commit suicide as a species. That's what weapons of mass destruction are about. That's why Hiroshima is a point of reference in this story. Auschwitz is a point of reference because it's a reminder to us of the depths of evil to which we human beings are capable of sinking. And now we have weapons with which to destroy ourselves. All of which, in my view, adds up to the conclusion that the time has come for human beings to change this way of behaving, to say no to the temptation to respond to violence with violence. Because if we don't find another way to resolve the problem of violence, we're doomed as a species. And I find it difficult to believe that human beings came all this way through millions of years of magnificent, really quite glorious evolution to simply commit suicide. I don't believe that will happen. But the truth is it could. And that's the choice that's been put before us. And Jerusalem is more than any other place a place where that choice becomes very vivid, very clear. In part of the book, I thought it was really interesting, I've never read this before, that you say that, and this is in reference to Constantine, that Christianity's enduring mistake was reducing itself to a solution for the problem of death. I was wondering if you could talk about that. Well, when we talk about Christianity, believe it or not, it, it helps to talk about Jesus. And uh, a lot of the ways in which people think and talk about Jesus really misses the point because Jesus was all about life actually he said himself if we can take the gospels seriously I came to give you life life to the full abundant life there's a Jewish toast lachaim it means to life there's something profoundly Jewish in this Jesus a Jew which, believe it or not, is difficult for many Christians to recall that Jesus was profoundly Jewish and the celebration of life was a manifestation of his Jewishness. Well, that's not the whole story because, of course, the first problem the followers of Jesus were confronted with was the brutal and unjust way he died. He was murdered, executed by Romans, an innocent man unjustly put to death. And that was a trauma for those who loved him. They couldn't let go of that trauma. They had to find a way to make sense of it. And so the death of Jesus became, in a way, the center of their memory of him, understandably. But the movement more and more and more defined itself centrally around that death. And you saw that, for example, in the 
way in which the rituals of Good Friday became the most important religious observance of the Christian year, having much more emotional weight even than Christmas and certainly than Easter. So what is Christianity about? It's about Good Friday. It's about the death of this man. It gives us a way to think about our own deaths. It can become a morbid preoccupation with death and dying. Well, death and dying is a human problem, but we weren't put here to die. We were put here to live. And so the ways in which Christianity can support life, life to the full, joy, self-confidence, affirmation, hope, resolution, living a good life and making sure other people can live a good life, so much more important than the gloom and doom of suffering, of penitence, of being unworthy, of being doomed, of being afraid of God, of being afraid of going to hell. I mean, what is that? All of that reflects a death obsession that is profoundly unchristian, has little to do with Jesus. And uh, the truth is, this became central to the Christian imagination around the time that the emperor of Rome, Constantine, himself became a Christian. He was the one, more than any other single person, who put the cross at the center of the Christian imagination. You remember the story. He had a vision of the cross in the sky before a battle. And on the strength of that vision, he became a Christian. Well, that was the beginning of the elevation of the cross, ultimately the crucifix, so that by the time of the Middle Ages, you get a preoccupation in the Latin church especially with the death, the gruesome, agonized death of Jesus. And lo and behold, we shouldn't be too surprised that the political manifestation of this preoccupation was what was called the War of the Cross, also known as the Crusades, about which I've spoken earlier. So it all boils down to a terrible perversion of the message of Jesus because it puts violence, the violent death of Jesus, at the center of the Christian experience when that's completely contrary both to the Gospels and to everything we know about who Jesus was. Life, life to the full. So not the crucifixion, but the resurrection. That's what the Christian proclamation is about. And I was particularly taken by your notion that throughout the book of scapegoating, if I'm paraphrasing it correctly, blaming another mm-hmm. instead of the self-reflection. Do you see that today? Well, you know, since this is a book about religious violence and begins with a reflection on sacrifice, I have to take up the question of scapegoating. I especially depend on anthropologist, theologian René Girard, who argues that religion itself comes from the human impulse to scapegoat, to channel our anxiety, restlessness, and fear, and perhaps our guilt, off onto some member of the community. And if we can pick out one member of the community, someone marginal, someone who can't get back at us, then the rest of us in the community can pour off our anxiety, our fear, our guilt onto that one figure. We blame them for all of the problems. We lynch them. This is the dynamic you see in lynching. We lynch them. And sure enough, we all feel better, which proves we were right to do it, and the scapegoated person was guilty. It's a very basic human dynamic. We see it in the most classic 
case of it in Western culture has been anti-Semitism, the scapegoating of Jews, in times of economic distress or anxiety, the ease with which people have been led to believe that their problems are the Jew. So what do we do? We target the Jew. This came to a bloody climax in the 1930s in Germany, as we know all too well. But that's not the only form it takes. There's been scapegoating in the United States of America in recent years, targeting Muslims, as if the attacks on 9-11 were an attack of the whole Islamic world against America, which of course they were not. Those attacks included attacks on Muslims, and the Muslim extremists who generated those attacks are at war with the bulk of the Muslim population around the world. So it made no sense to scapegoat Muslims in this country or to go after Muslims in unrelated ways abroad. But of course the point is scapegoating never makes any sense. It's an irrational impulse. And the important thing is to lay bare the scapegoat mechanism, to see that that's what we're doing, to understand that that's what we're doing when we have this urge to blame someone for our trouble and then target them the reason we have to be aware of it is that it's basic to the human condition. You see it in high schools when bullies target a weaker kid or when you see it when gay people get targeted. Don't ask, don't tell. The denigration of gay people in the United States military that was only just recently ended was a classic instance of scapegoating. So it's a basic manifestation of human impulses and the solution to it is to be aware of it to call it out when it happens, to name it, and to understand how basic it is to all of us. It's a function of our fear and our anxiety, the illusion that we can be free of fear and free of anxiety by blaming somebody. Deeply inhuman, profoundly dangerous. In the context of Roger Williams and the founding of Rhode Island, you mentioned that that was really the the separation of church and state represented the single largest turn in the story of sacred violence. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, if you look at the long sweep of the relationship between religion and violence, it gets embedded in a fresh way in a human culture when state power is joined to religious belief. And in the West, the defining moment where that took place was when the Roman Emperor, Constantine, became a Christian because at that point the church became the empire. Religion was advanced with military power and state interests began to advance themselves by appealing to religion. A mingling of religion and state power that led to an escalation of violence in, at the very root of Western civilization. And we tracked that history through the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, into the modern period, when a kind of climactic manifestation of religious state violence took place in the era beginning and following the Protestant Reformation, when Christians went to savage war with each other in Europe, all over Europe, in the 16th, 17th, into the 18th centuries. And the killing of one Christian by another, savage violence in the name of God, was a kind of generating crisis in the imagination of the people who settled North America, especially the 
English Puritans, the people we remember at Thanksgiving time as the pilgrims. Remember that the great defining settlement of English people in New England took place, I'm talking about the 17th century. 1620 was the Mayflower, 1630 was the Arbella, John Winthrop, the great sermon, City on a Hill. Tens of thousands of dissenting English Puritans came to the New World, motivated in some large part by a repudiation of the violent conflict that they saw savaging the Christian world in Europe. The so-called Thirty Years' War, in which we don't know exactly how many, but it's not too much to say that more than a million, probably maybe even some millions, died across Europe. The Thirty Years' War, savage violence across the continent. That went from 1618 to 1648, exactly when New England was being settled by religious dissenters. Of course, the religious dissenters who settled New England were not Democrats. They were not liberal Democrats. They were theocrats. They wanted to establish a righteous kingdom here, God's kingdom here in the New World. And they brought with them the old habits of scapegoating, scapegoating violence, intolerance. They were violent in relationship to the native peoples they found here. And then they turned violent against their own dissenters, people in the community who did not agree with the way in which those in authority were proclaiming the word or legislating. And so we see this wonderful story of a first generation of American dissenters, great women like Anne Hutchinson or Mary Dyer, and the great male figure, Roger Williams, who was one of those first settlers in Plymouth, in Boston, ultimately driven out of both places, went to Salem. And he was defending the rights of native peoples, the rights of dissenters, and he came up with an idea that basically we would recognize as freedom of conscience. The magistrate must exist to protect the inner life of the citizen, he argued. And in order to do that, he said, the magistrate must be religiously neutral. Roger Williams planted the seed there of what we came to call the separation of church and state. Thomas Jefferson used some of Roger Williams' own language, the wall of separation, for example, the phrase associated with Jefferson originates with Roger Williams. And it's one of the great turns in this long story of religion and violence, because when you separate state power from religious faith, you can mitigate the impulse to wield weapons in the name of God. And in the United States of America, this tradition of the separation of church and state has been a really profound step forward in this problem. We're not finished with it because we're still human beings, but we can be critical of our own behavior. So when we fall into the old patterns, as we have, I would argue, in the war on terror, still we can be critical of it and understand that we're somehow violating our own basic principles. You conclude the book and you talk about the idea of a good religion. Can you talk about that? Well, you would think after all this long study of religious violence that I would be against religion. And there are plenty of reasons to be against religion, and there are critics of religion today who are profoundly against religion, who think that religion is only a source of suffering and injustice. I don't believe that myself. I'm a religious person, and I think that religion is 
is a way of living deeply in the human condition. So I'm frankly looking for ways to defend the idea of religion. It occurred to me that the argument shouldn't be between no religion or religion, but between learning how to distinguish between good religion and bad religion. And let's admit as religious people that yes, there have been many, many crimes committed in the name of religion and that there are profoundly inhuman ways of being religious. If I'm religious in a way that denigrates you, then that's bad religion. If my religion says, by definition, Jews are the enemy of God, that's bad religion. If my religion says that white people are superior to people of color, that's bad religion. Good religion is religion that takes the principles of justice, compassion, caring, love, service, quite seriously. So at the end of this book, looking back on this long history, I do reflect on, on the elements of good religion. And of course the first note I strike is that good religion is never coercive, always respects the freedom of conscience, both of oneself and of others. Ultimately the book ends on a bit of optimism that humans are able to learn from history. It's true. It's a, again, you might think this dark history would, would lead to a kind of pessimistic conclusion, but the point again of doing history is is we see again and again and again how human beings down through the eons have learned from their experience. They see what they've done, they criticize themselves for it, and they change. That's the story. And that's the story in our own time. You know, we are privileged to live in a period when human beings came to the very edge of nuclear destruction, a savage obliteration of the entire planet. And we human beings found a way to step back from that, in part out of religious impulses, I would add, not only, but in part. And that's an example of the kind of possible change that should motivate us going forward. The point is we're not condemned to violence. If we were, then we would be finished, because now violence is earth-destroying. And now that we see that it's earth-destroying, I believe, human beings can recognize what they're confronted with and change the way they behave. Mr. Carroll, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It's an honor to have you. My privilege, Ian. I wish you well. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.